WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. Retail space here in the Queen City is largely booming, but there's still an unsettling trend in a growing city. Several major spaces in Charlotte defaulting on their loans. The latest victim, Carolina Place Mall. It joins a growing list of properties across Charlotte, including the epicenter, North Lake Mall and Uptown's one Wells Fargo building, struggling to make ends meet. Joining us now is Chuck McShane. He's the director of market analytics at CoStar, looking at office and retail trends here in the Charlotte area. I mean, Chuck, thanks for coming on Flashpoint. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, so give us an idea, uh, some insight. What is sort of the state of retail space here in Charlotte right now? Well, the broader retail market is, is healthier than it's really ever been. Uh, we've, we've seen record low vacancy rates uh, because we haven't been building much new retail since over, over the last 10 years. Uh, the big exception is the, the mall space and some of the ground floor retail space that's in, uh, in, in your more urban areas. So it really is, has been impacted by uh, shifts in how we, where we work and, and, and where we shop and how we shop. Um, so while neighborhood centers, smaller format retail has thrived, uh, you're seeing, and, and also your high-end malls have, have done quite well and outlet malls have done quite well. It's your class B um, sort of middle of the road malls that are that are struggling a bit. And I would assume a lot of this has been completely upended by the pandemic. Yeah, I think I think office to, to a greater degree, uh, I think retail as well, though. We, we obviously we saw an increasing share of retail sales happen online and also happen closer to where people live. Uh, so goods that could be purchased online, um, there's no need to go to stores for those anymore unless there's some sort of differentiator. Um, so either there's some sort of um, luxury that you can't get somewhere else, there's some sort of customer service or customer experience that you can't get anywhere else. And so that's driven more retailers to focus on experiential uh, retail, things you can't get online. Uh, and that's pushed them into, into smaller uh, retail spaces closer to where people live. People are spending more time uh, in, in, in their homes as well, so they want to shop closer to where, where they are and, and not necessarily get in the car and go 30 minutes to spend a day at the mall. Uh, they want things that are closer to, to, yeah. to home. And you mentioned the malls, and we, we've seen major malls, office buildings default on their loans everywhere from Pineville to Uptown. Put it in context for us. What does this mean for these spaces as well as the, the, the broader market? Yeah, I mean, so there's two things that, is, that, that are really impacting those defaults. Number one, interest rates. Um, they've doubled essentially in the past three or four years, and, and that's impacting all commercial real estate. And, and then the impact of, um, of where, we're, where we're shopping and how we're shopping uh, is leading to lower occupancy in, the, in those malls. Um, I think to some extent, you're, you're, as those malls reach their maturity date you know, for, for their loans, and are not necessarily having the income coming in, that rental income that, that they were relying on uh, when their malls were full, uh, we're, we're gonna see many of these either go into, um, into foreclosure, go into special servicing, where there's, they'll try to work out some sort of deal. Potentially these malls will see uh, their values decline. And, and, and at that point, there can be some opportunities for buyers to come in and, and, and uh, purchase the malls and, and potentially at, at a discount and potentially uh, change the tenant mix, um, reposition them in, in, in some way. Um, for others, there may be some redevelopment potential down the road. Um, but overall, I think the Charlotte markets, um, because of strong population growth in the Charlotte market, overall retail is doing quite well. Um, 
it's just these properties are going to have to reinvent themselves and, and or reposition themselves for the future. How empty are some of these uh, places? Well, it depends. It, it, it depends on how you look at how you how you look at them. I would say overall that we, we track a, a a mall retail vacancy of around fifteen percent overall, and that includes some full malls like South Park and Concord Mills, uh, and um, so higher vacancy rates in, in some other areas. Really, the challenge is when it, when an anchor tenant leaves, uh, that can be that, that can spike your vacancy rate pretty pretty quickly, and then the the smaller spaces uh, tend tend to go along uh, with that. So. Um, yeah, retail vacancy rate in the Charlotte market is around 3%. Uh, mall vacancy rates are closer to, to 12 to 15% overall. Overall. Um, and what does this mean, though, for, for other places, unique places, sort of like uh, Queen City Quarter, former epicenter um, in Uptown? Uh, I, I know they're hoping to change sort of the, the, the makeup of, of that complex, but what does this mean for them? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think any... The, the office market is really impacting uh, what's happening uptown as well. So any place where you have lower foot traffic is going to uh, it's going to have to have to reinvent themselves uh, in, in different ways and find new ways to, to attract people. Um, so I think a lot of those that that College Street corridor because of uh, a lot of the older office space that's there that's also uh, in in trouble um, and also defaulting on, on, on some of their loans. Um, that, that, that's a longer term play. Um, you have to find ways to get people to spend more time there that's not the office necessarily. So focusing on more events, focusing on entertainment, and potentially bringing more uh, more residential uses there. Um, I think that's a longer term possibility for, for those sort of urban retail markets. You, you talked about how the, the Charlotte market as a whole is doing well from a retail, retail standpoint, commercial standpoint. Um, but when you talk about that urban core, center city, uh, I, I know that they've talked about making more of a, a neighborhood, more of a place where people live, not just work. Um, how optimistic are you that, that things can, uh, can turn around and do better than they're currently doing? Uh, you know, I, I think I mean, that, that's a good question. I, I think um, longer term that there is some opportunity there. I think it's going to take a while to, to sort out. Um, uh, again, if, if you if you come here to, I'm, I'm sitting in Uptown right now. If you come to Uptown um, when there's an event going on, an event going on, or, or some other um, thing that's drawing people here, uh, it's as vibrant as it's ever been. The, the challenge is you have the loss of foot traffic uh, during the day. That's really impacted the retail centers here. Um, so anything that's and that goes along with what I was saying about how retail is thriving in the suburbs where people are living, where people are spending more time. It's also thriving in urban neighborhoods like South End, uh, where people where, where you had the uh, uh, apartments come first, you had the residential come first, and then the office followed. Uh, I think I, I think uptown uh, is going to have to find a way to uh, um, to bring more people there, to get more people to spend more time there. Uh, residential wise, that's a longer term process. I think uh, more events. Um, uh, more entertainment, more uh, um, things to bring people into um, the urban core. I I'm optimistic that that that, that can um, advance some of the retail uptown, um, but longer. But but the re the residential is going to be a longer term play. Gotcha. Um, and give us a broader view of this as well. How is Charlotte performing compared to other cities? Well, so on the. On the retail side, we're, we're doing quite well. Uh, again, we're we're one of the strongest top five uh, in terms of retail absorption in, in the market um, as, as a percentage of our, our inventory. So more demand, uh, more space is being occupied than, than is being vacated. On the office side, uh, uh, demand is, has been basically been flat. 
Um, so we've had certain buildings that have uh, thrived, that have that have taken a lot of the demand, taken a lot of the a lot of the um, the leasing, and then we've had older buildings that haven't been able to to perform quite as well. Uh, we came into the pandemic uh, with one of the tightest office vacancy rates in the country. Uh, that's basically doubled since then, um, largely because we built a ton of new space. We built eight million square feet of new office space since 2020, and and at the same time as that office demand flattened out. So the new buildings took all of the the, the tenants, all of the new demand, uh, and we didn't have many many uh, companies coming into the market to backfill those older spaces. Uh, and so that's where the office market is struggling. Um, so our vacancy rate right now is um, is is middle of the pack around 13% office vacancy um, up from 7% before uh, before the pandemic but if you look at the, the rise uh, in vacancies we're actually one of the top 10 markets for increase in vacancies in, since 2019 when it comes to the office sector um, so you have really two office markets you have one that's thriving in in the, the best new buildings and then uh, one that's really struggling in, in buildings built before 1990 uptown, uh, the availability rate's about 35%. Yeah, some of the older buildings. Everybody wants to be in the yeah. new fancy buildings. All right. Exactly. And wants to be places where there's um, there are other things to do, where there's sure. an ecosystem of retail uh, where you can live, uh, live, work, and play. And that's why Southland South has, has thrived. Exactly. That, which makes sense. All right, Chuck McShane, Director of Market Analytics. Chuck, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, more Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. A partial win for Governor Cooper this week as the power struggle continues with Republicans in the General Assembly. A three-judge panel temporarily ruling that the governor should have the power to appoint to three boards, including transportation, public health, and economic investment. It's just part of an ongoing battle as the General Assembly tries to strip more power away from the governor. Joining us now is Giselle Torres. She's the communications manager at Democracy North Carolina. It's a group that works to protect democracy here in the state. Giselle, thanks for coming on Flashpoint. We appreciate it. Good to be here. So this week, a judge temporarily letting Governor Cooper keep some of his power. What makes this, in your view, so significant? Well, as we've seen um, in uh, previous years with the state legislature, there is a unequivocal need to um, for un unconstitutional power grabs. So what Governor Cooper is arguing in this lawsuit is that it was an unconstitutional power grab. And by the uh, state courts issuing a temporary injunction for the three boards and commissions from going into effect, they're siding with the governor and they're siding with the people at this point to ensure there is a separation of powers. At the heart of the argument was the law went too far and it violated that separation of powers and the rules that are embedded in the North Carolina state constitution, which says the General Assembly passes laws, but the exec executive branch enforces them. Uh, so let's say that Republicans go on to succeed with this and they in fact strip more power from the governor. Um, what do you view as the implications here? Well, as we have learned over the time that the three branches of government are there to be a checks and balances for one another, the judicial branch, the executive branch, and the state legislative branch. What we've seen more recently with the North Carolina Supreme Court, for example, and their unprecedented overturning of recent um, rulings after the 2022 midterm elections is that they're starting to side with the legislative 
branch due to similar political ideologies. What we're now also seeing when stripping the appointment powers here for the state governor, along with other appointment powers that we've seen in the past, like in the 2021 state budget, where they stripped his um, abilities to call for a state of emergency in response to the coronavirus pandemic and outbreak, that they're also going for this centralization of power at the state legislature. So really, they're wanting to control not only the state legislator, but the influence and the power of our judiciary courts and the governorship. So no matter who's in power, the General Assembly, which is now controlled by Republicans, would have an overreach of power and authority when either passing laws, when either appointments are made at the um, judiciary or at the um, commissionary, uh, uh, standards commissions, the Coastal Resources Commission, the Environmental uh, Management Commission, and the um, other commissions that uh, the, the, the judges have left for changes, we're seeing that it's really going to be a centralization of power. And that really goes against what Democracy North Carolina stands for and what the voters have stand for in elected leaders that align with the positions that the community members have, rather than the political views that those few Republicans or those that the control the General Assembly have. We, we had Pat McCrory on the show uh, a while back, and he told us that he was uh, against the idea of stripping power away from the state's executive because she was on the other foot. Democrats get power back, then they would enforce this the same way and it wouldn't be good news for Republicans. That being said, and what you just explained to us, why is this not a more bipartisan issue then? I think what we're seeing with the temporary injunction, knowing that it was two Republicans and one Democrats, that there is a uh, at the state level at least, perhaps not at the federal level, but at the state level that we're seeing in the courts right now issuing this injunction, that there is a consensus that is too far of an overreach. Um, when we know that no matter who's in power, whether it is a Republican, whether it is a Democrat, that the voters voted those folks into power. and. We've seen North Carolina become a quote unquote purple state where a majority of voters might have voted for one certain candidate at the presidential um, election in 2020. Let's say they, the, the majority went for Trump, but the majority for the governorship went to um, Roy Cooper. So we are seeing that among voters, among state legislators, and with this um, temporary injunction, we're seeing it at the the court level too, that there is a consensus, a bipartisan consensus, that there is too far of an overreach happening. Let's talk about the, the new district maps that have been drawn by uh, the General Assembly uh, in the last couple of weeks. The new maps essentially guarantee Republicans will get more control of North Carolina's congressional delegation, um, 10 to three, 10 to four, depending on how it would work out. Uh, Democrats vowing to sue, as you know, this issue has been litigated uh, in the court system constantly uh, over the last decade or so. Um, where do you see this uh, finally um, sort of landing? Well, as we saw in 2018, where the courts um, at that time, the political makeup of the courts did side with the people and they did strike down partisan gerrymandering. 
and racial gerrymandering, noting that the maps were drawn with surgical precision. And after the 2020 census was released and in 2021, when the redistricting cycle uh, started again, there was a special master that was appointed uh, due to the maps that were presented in 2021, again, um, targeting packing and cracking black communities, minority communities, um, communities of color, North Carolina. So a special master was appointed at that time. And um, the Princeton Review named the maps of North Carolina at that time to be one of the most fairest maps in the country, giving seven Democrats and seven Republicans um, the an equal leaning in the maps that we used for the 2022 midterm election. So we had, and we, and there is an opportunity for North Carolina to have fair maps that represent the purple state, that represent the people and the vast diversity of political ideology across North Carolina. Giselle Torres, she's the communications manager at Democracy North Carolina. Giselle, thanks for coming on, we appreciate it. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Some million dollar problems for a pandemic era program. During that uncertain time, North Carolina's HOPE program helped keep the lights on and renters in their homes. But a Where's the Money investigation found in its rush to deliver that help, the state paid out millions of dollars in pandemic aid by mistake. That pandemic aid, by the way, funded by you, the taxpayer. As Neat Morbido learned, the program is now asking for that money back. Records show the HOPE program has only recovered or entered into payment plans for about $425,000 of the 1,000 mistaken and in a small number of cases fraudulent payments so far. That's less than 15% of all money owed and the state isn't sure how much of the rest it'll get back. Randy Berardi has spent most of her life taking care of herself. So when she lost her job during the pandemic, I don't have anybody to fall back on immediately. The Charlotte woman had no choice but to ask for help, dipping into her savings, terrified she'd get evicted, unsure of her next meal. Honestly, it was pretty bad. I mean, it was getting down to that point. Two and a half years later. Oh yeah, it feels very good. I'm very grateful to have came a long way. She has a stable job, a new apartment, and her future looks bright in large part thanks to the HOPE program and the thousands of dollars in rent and utility help it delivered. Honestly, I didn't think I'd be where I am right now um, when I look at things back then. Long after coming to the rescue of people in crisis, the pandemic program now has its own handout, asking for repayments from landlords and utility companies that mistakenly received money from the state. I would be in shock if I received a message like that um, after everything we went through. It's just a matter of human error on our side and human error on applicant side. Amanda Stapleton is compliance director for the North Carolina Office of Recovery and Resiliency. She argues the $3 million in mistaken payments is low when you consider the program paid out $786 million in all. Noting the federally recognized fraud and improper payment protections the agency put in place early on. With the larger volume and the magnitude, the processing with that comes a lot more risk when you're trying to operate fast and compliant. Stapleton says there are nine reasons why the agency would send a letter asking for repayment. Everything from learning someone received duplicate benefits through multiple programs to finding out someone was ineligible to accidental overpayments. The programs collected just a fraction of the $3 million identified. How do you feel about that? 
I don't think it's ever good enough. Stapleton says the state hasn't yet taken any legal action to collect the rest, waiting on guidance from the federal government. In the meantime, the program has granted appeals in more than 100 cases so far. We are doing our best to give the benefit of the doubt. Understanding people's circumstances changed daily during the pandemic giving them the chance to prove the money went to its rightful place. Very grateful altogether. It helped a lot. Help that made all the difference for struggling renters. It started building my confidence. I felt relaxed. I could breathe a little bit more. Like Randy Berardi. Over in South Carolina, it's unclear the number of mistaken payments made by that state's rental and utility assistance program. We're told right now, the program's reviewing records to verify the status of questionable payments. Nate Moravito, WCNC Charlotte. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Folks, come interact with us on social media, Instagram, X as it's called now, Facebook as well. If there's something you want us to chat about here on Flashpoint, let us know. And as always, remember to listen and subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you get yours. And we'll see you back here next weekend.